Welcome to the 212th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. About a year ago, I did a podcast interview with a young dairy farmer named Olaf Hagen. We talked about how he has done a particularly good job of connecting soil health with profitable milk production. Haugen, who farms in southeastern Minnesota, milks around 160 cows. What struck me about Olaf's management style is his heavy reliance on forages and how that seemed to give him a competitive advantage in a dairy market that has seen prices head to the dumps in recent years. Forages make up some 70% of his cow herd's diet. During the growing season, Olaf rotationally grazes cows in perennial pastures as well as on fields planted to annual cover crops, or what he calls annual forage sources. The farmer raises no row crops, and he finds that while relying heavily on forages as a source of feed results in lower per cow milk production in comparison to his more conventional neighbors, his overall profitability is high. That's because he's spending less money on cropping equipment, fuel, chemicals, confinement buildings, and manure handling facilities, among other things. Forages are key to this business model, and because healthy soil produces healthy, productive grasses and cover crops, Olaf sees a direct connection between microbes and money. I thought of that when I returned to the Haugen farm recently to learn about a multi-state analysis of dairy grazing profitability. While I was there, Olaf, along with his parents Bonnie and Vance, gave me and a group of farmers a tour of their grazing paddocks. We also heard a presentation on a study that put some good numbers to what we were observing on the land. The study examined the 2017 cost of production information from seven farms that have a history of effectively utilizing managed rotational grazing. The financials from these farms, which are in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois, were then compared to several years of benchmark data collected from dairy farms of similar size, but which are considered more conventional in their production practices and do not rely heavily on managed rotational grazing. This analysis, which was done by the Midwest Perennial Forage Working Group of Greenland's Blue Waters, did not involve randomly selected farms, so the results can't be extrapolated to grazing dairy farms in general. However, These preliminary results show that, despite lower per cow milk production, the seven grazing operations had some significant competitive advantages as a result of cut rate production costs. Besides less money spent on cropping equipment and inputs, the grazing operations spent well less than half as much on veterinary bills when compared to their conventional counterparts. That's no surprise, as other studies have shown cattle in well-managed grazing systems are healthier than confined livestock. So, these seven grazing operations had lower overall production costs, which resulted in greater whole farm income. In fact, the grazing operations made almost twice as much whole farm profit overall as the benchmark farms, despite producing less milk per cow. In other words, this analysis mirrors what I had witnessed firsthand on the Haugen farm, that maximum productivity does not always equal maximum profit. After the farm tour, I talked to a couple of people who were involved with the analysis. First, I chatted with Tom Cattawalleter, who is a consultant with the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship, one of the members of the Midwest Perennial Forage Working Group. Tom described how the study was done and talked about its implications for dairy farmers looking to give themselves a competitive advantage via grazing. Well, the idea was to look at just the real simple cost of production income having to do with what we call the the farm operation of the dairy farm. Mm -hmm. So we didn't get into a real in-depth analysis of of rate of return on assets, looking at, you know, the debt levels and, you know, um, assets. And we just wanted to focus on the cash part of the business that was turning over. 
And so we just used a real simple analysis where it's just a matter of taking what we call the 1040F numbers, you know, the numbers that everybody keeps track of, and then comparing a group of seven grazing farms to some benchmark numbers that, have, that are kept track of. That's done in Minnesota through what's called FinBIN, uh, through the Center for Farm Financial Management. And in Wisconsin, we use uh, uh, AGFA, which is, comes out of the Center for Dairy Profitability website. Both places provide uh, data on farm financials every year that are reported by tax preparers and uh, farm financial consultants, and farmers can do it themselves. And then those numbers are pooled together, and then people can tap into them to you know, get kind of what's the industry doing mm -hmm. on that basis. So what we wanted to do is take these seven farms and see how they matched up to the benchmark farms. Only looked at what we call the 1040F numbers, and that's the income related to the dairy farm and the expenses, the money that goes out the door, and see how those two matched up. We looked at the numbers a couple different ways. Uh, one of them was is you can break it out and look at it for the units of product that are shipped and on a dairy farm that's milk is sold on a hundred weight basis. So we, we looked at it. What is the different cost items reported to the to those sources and or that we collected from the farms on a per hundred weight of milk shipped basis. And then we also uh, said, okay, how did the um, how did the farm do on a per animal basis? Because mm -hmm. we knew how many cows on average these farms were milking to, to produce the amount of milk that they, that they did and the income that went out and that they had to pay expenses for. And then, uh, then you look at the, uh, the whole farm. You take the, the kind of the whole bottom line for the farm and to see how those different things matched up. For the grazing farms, um, these in these types of farms, what we look at is the whole philosophy behind the system is to try to do a lower cost, less stressful management system. So we looked at farms, we compared farms that actually produce the same gross income. And so on a grazing farm, on the farm that we looked at, we, the average farm that we looked at was about 150, 151 cows. To produce the same income as in the benchmark farms, it's about 119 cows. So, okay, it took more cows to do that, but there was some real pluses that show up. And so even though on per line items basis, a product that is shipped out the door, that it actually costs more on a grazing farm to for every 100 pounds of milk to do different things. But there was some real benefits that show up that you don't see until you look at the whole farm profitability picture on how those numbers come together. And that's uh, income coming in from uh, replacement breeding stock, uh, the number of replacement animals that need to be bought. And that's where the grazing farms, even on a per item ship basis, they were slightly more expensive. Uh, it cost them a little bit more per unit. When you looked at the bottom line for the farm, they were actually twice as profitable as the benchmark farms because they weren't spending money on some particular items because they don't push the cows as hard. Mm. Uh, the cows are staying in the herd longer. Uh, the health is down. They spend about half as much money on vet costs. They aren't spending, they're spending less than half the amount of money on any cropping system. They're spending the same amount on purchase feed, but they're buying in a lot of their forage crops because they're spending more of their time on just managing grass, keeping the cows moving, and handling more cows with the, with the same amount of labor. So they're actually, that, and that's really with the bottom line, how much money's in the farmer's pocket at the end of the day mm -hmm. and on these seven farms. And it, is this reflective of all farms? 
No, there's a lot of variation within these farms, but that was the case with the benchmark farms too, because you're only looking at the average. Profitability, you have to look at the whole picture, but to make management decisions, you know, if you can actually improve your cost to produce 100 pounds of milk, which there is some room for improvement, that improves your profitability even more. So that's just a way of reflecting on how you can look at the profitability on the farm a lot of different ways. People brag about milk production, but milk production costs money. And it's not just in the feed cost, it's also in a lot of subtle little things down the road. Well, and I think one of the things you had talked about was, for example, farmers have traditionally gotten into the mindset, dairy farmers, that they have to produce all their own feed. So that means they have to have the equipment to produce it, they have to have the row crop acres, they have to have the facilities, the hauling, everything. Yeah. And you're saying, well, if you look at things like, for example, not buying all your, or, or, or not producing all your own feed, buying some of that feed, and then grazing uh, uh, the bulk of your feed needs, the thing is, is if you can buy commodities, because there are farms that are much better suited for, for cropping with, with equipment, and they're always going to be doing it. The, the business is out there. We're not saying don't do that. But how, so it's the idea is, is you can use, nobody says you have to do it either. <laughs> so you can, fit, you can fit into that niche, especially if the farm is well suited to grazing, if it's, it's rolling topography, if it lays well for it, but even on flat ground. Because there's always going to be people that got bigger pieces of machinery that on a per unit, if you're a small farm, you can't afford the machinery and the labor to cost. You're never going to compete for them with them head up on a per unit basis. You won't. The bigger guy who can do it with a bigger tractor with less, less employees is going to beat you every time on a commodity basis. But on a value-added thing like a dairy cow where you can feed lots of different things to them, you can feed different forages, different quality forages, you can feed them corn, corn silage, you can feed them soybeans, you can feed them all those things, you can mix and match. So where I found, this started 24 years ago when I first started working with these numbers with grazers, is the, the grazers that started making money right out of the chute were the ones who sold all their cropping equipment had the only equipment they needed for managing their forages on their farm and putting more in grass and managing the cows. So they quit trying to do it all and got on the telephone midsummer and contracted in their crops that they needed for winter, winter feed. And the har feed that they did harvest was the feed on their farm so they could control their, their grass levels and the quality of pastures that they had out there. So it was a management tool, not just a feed production tool. Well, and I think one of the other things you, you pointed out was that uh, sometimes people get into the mindset when they convert to rotational grazing or a grazing-based system is then they can maybe get away with not feeding high-quality feeds. That, that, that can you be can a mistake. You can never do that. Yeah. The cows, and she'll do it every time, is she will turn that into a high-quality product that you can market, as long as you get a market for it. And that's why uh, it's a lot of people... Have, who graze are easily able to shift over to organic production, and now the, the production of grass milk and grass beef is the same thing. I personally grow grass beef. And under a well-managed grazing system, you can outperform any feedlot in the world because you can't, you can't buy the quality that you can, you can grow in the field if you manage it properly. And it's not tough to do. It's just moving fence. Mm -hmm. And that's easy to do nowadays. Well, so what is this looking at? And I know this is you're still kind of... Uh, finalizing this, the, these numbers and kind of trying to come up with a overall uh, description of what's going on here. But we're at a time right now where dairy prices are terrible. It's not looking good here in the near future. 
what does something like this maybe offer us? Does it offer us some some hope or some, uh, I guess, some some guidance well, for people who are interested in grazing, being there? A grazing farm that doesn't have a lot of money invested in equipment and buildings, if they have to cut back on production, they aren't paying those bills. They just cut back on production, and they cut back on expenses at the same time. If you look at a lot of the successful grazing farms I've been working with over the years, it's basically they're investing in facilities, but just pretty minimal. Uh, it's basically they're focusing on grass management. The thing is, is you can shift that, you can shift that around, and if you can produce a high-quality product, you back off. You're not paying the bill and the taxes on a million-dollar investment in buildings and equipment. Yeah, I think the guy who's got the big field equipment, he's still paying the bills, even uh, unless he's leasing, of course, right. you know, and he can turn it back in when he's done. But a lot of those are spending a lot of money on equipment that sits there. Yeah, and we certainly see that with the Haugen's farm here, and that they really talked about not investing a lot in buildings, field equipment, that that's because that's something that they can reduce their uh, production. They can adjust. They can adjust. They can adjust to the marketplace, and that's really what you're trying to accomplish. Is uh, and I the dairy product is. Even right now, the grazing farms, like I said, compared to confinement, were twice as profitable on the seventh. Now, were these random farms? No, of course not. Uh, but the study that we just did is completely supported by 16 years' worth of comparisons done by the Center for Dairy Profitability looking at grazing organic and conventional dairies. Mm -hmm. So all we did is just show on just little sampling that it just backed up what we had already seen in longer-term studies. Was there anything that really surprised you in looking at this that you didn't, you because you, you knew about this other research, but something well, that kind of struck you? I was surprised. It's always nice, re, it's a pleasant surprise to see. I first started seeing this stuff just just myself and doing the one-on-one -on -one with farmers 24 years ago when I started working with this stuff. And I made some of these, that's what I had noticed but after doing this study, it's just really warding to see that, yep, we're right on track. These are the things where this is where they save money. This is where the profitability lays. That's the competitive advantage that they have in the marketplace. Some of the things they can really have a competitive advantage in is herd health, not spending as much money on, obviously, field equipment. What was some of, I mean, just what's kind of the list of some of the things... Well, the, anything having to do with cropping, they save money on. Yeah. So they spend considerably less money on seed because they aren't seeding anything down other yeah. than some summer annuals and all that. So their seed costs were considerably lower, about a third of what they are in, you know, in a conventional dairy, dairy farm. Uh, so seed, chemicals, um, custom cropping expenses are, uh, can actually be about the same, if not a little bit higher at times, because they're hiring in custom people to do the work. We are also seeing a, a lower depreciation claimed on machinery and equipment, typically. No depreciation on breeding livestock because they're actually growing more replacement animals than they have to go out and buy, and they're generally in a position of selling their extra replacements because they usually have more than they need. Uh, and the other thing we saw is, is animal health. Um, vet bills are about half to a third uh, of the cost in general is what they are in a conventional farm because you're not pushing the animals for peak production, right. maximizing their production. You're scaling them back to what I call a coasting or a cruising speed without having to push them. you got a genetic potential cow in the Holstein industry, for instance, it can be going up to 30,000 pounds of milk, and you're only asking her on a grazing farm to produce 15 to 16,000 pounds of milk. The other thing we're always missing is the hidden cost of a system that's tilling the ground on a regular basis. From and that you know, and the thing is, is the farmers being rewarded in that they're building soil till 
uh, by the organic matter that's staying on the farm, uh, the nutrients and all that. So grazing farms are typically constantly gaining in or soil organic matter, the ability to absorb water, the ability to, to grow because they're, they're, if they're doing a good job of managed grazing, they're keeping the nutrients where they're on the, on the field, and if nothing else, buying in those other forages, they're actually increasing the nutrients on a farm. But there's the public benefit to permanent sods. And unfortunately, they're really not rewarded for that. So, and, and I don't expect that to be happening in the mindset that people are in right now. That's, you know, the tragedy of the commons is people, you know, who aren't having to pay that cost are taking advantage of the systems that basically are pretty rough on the environment. Uh, and they're getting away with it because they're not having to pay for it. And I don't blame them. That's what the tragedy of the commons is. Mm -hmm. It's people are taking advantage of a common set of resources to take advantage of that for their own personal well-being, but not having to compensate the commons for what they've extracted or they've done to something. It kind of gets back to that for the grazer. They may not see that immediate return on investment, but it's a, it's a long-term investment when they're building that soil health like that. Oh, absolutely. And the grazers who have been at it, because it takes five to six years from, convention, from going from a conventional system to a, a pasture system that's just really starting to make headway, it takes almost five years to get to that point to recover a field from a, uh, from a moldboard plot, mm -hmm. from a, a very constant system of cultivating. I also talked to Jim Paulson, a former University of Minnesota Extension educator who also works with a dairy grazing apprenticeship. Jim talked about why it's important for grazers to differentiate between things you can control and things you cannot control. Turns out, building soil health with well-managed grazing systems is one of those things we do have the ability to manipulate. And that's good news for farmers' bank accounts as well as the land. As we think about the farms we're on and, and where we're at, you know, part of the things that really don't change much, uh, you know, our geographic location, the farm we're on, we've got, you know, so many acres, uh, certain soils, things like that. You know, our growing season's only so long, and we're going to get on any given year, on the average, so much rain, so much, you know, temperature variation and things. But sometimes, you know, those things don't always come when we want them and uh, more rain at times and not enough at other times and things like that. But, you know, we really can't do much about that. So I think we try to look at ways, think about ways to do a better job on the things we can control. And we'll just have to let those other parts, uh, that's part of the risks that we have in farming. And so the risks in grazing, you know, we want productive pastures. And we know if we do some things to manage that better, uh, we're going to have better success, more resiliency, be able to stand those risks a little bit. Certainly some of that is then how we manage our pastures and how many acres we have. What's our stocking rate? What's our stocking density? Hopefully, the more grass that we can grow and the better job we can do will be lesser amounts of purchase feeds and things like that. The other part of that is managing our operation that we focus on cows, focus on cow productivity, not making big investments in things that won't make us that return on the money. So I think that's uh, some of the things that we really need to think about Think about the thought process, what you can influence, what you can't, and then let's focus on those things that we can. It would seem that, uh, and we saw this a little bit here on the Haugen farm, that they have focused, for example, on not investing a lot in obviously not field equipment because they're not raising row crops, but also not a lot of buildings, that kind of thing, and, and they're doing outwintering so that they are not don't have that investment in there. And the way they look at it is, 
if they need to reduce reduce their production, uh, then they aren't still trying to pay off a building or a piece of equipment or whatever that was budgeted when they were at a higher production, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a really good point. One of the things we have to be careful um, on a uh, grazing operation, we're not going to try to get maximum production. We want to get optimal production. But if we keep our investments down, especially when we're starting up, we need to invest in cows and producing milk and selling milk, selling butterfat, selling protein, however we want to look at that, and think about how we can economically take care of the cows. And if we have so much margin per cow, then how many cows do we need to milk and, and to do that? And I think it can make a very good income. I think the Haugans have shown that, that it's a profitable way and a resilient way to stay in business. So there are definitely some things to think about how we uh, are approaching our whole cropping system, our feed supply system, taking care of cows, and uh, try to do the best job we can without over-investing and uh, having that debt because, as you said, too, if, if we are on a high production model and we're not on a high production production course, uh, we're going to have uh, shortfalls, and that's going to be tight. You know, one of the things that for years, it seems, at least when I was taking soil science in college and, and up until relatively recently, it was felt that one of those factors you could not control was your soil health. And that's changed, hasn't it? And, 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 it's seen, and we've seen examples on farms like this where they seems like they, that is, just with the past few years or so, it, ha, it is one of those things that you put on the other side of the column that, you know what, I can, I don't need to focus on some of that other stuff, how steep the land is or whatever, because I can't change that, but I can change the actual uh, biology of that soil and that can have some impact. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And you know, we are just learning so much about soils, soil health, the soil organisms and how they work together and then, then there's so much going on below the surface of the ground and the surface of the earth and there is above it. And as we start learning those principles and employing them into our productivity of our cropping systems, our pastures or whatever it might be, we see the payback. But we see things like increased water absorption, retaining more water on the land and less running off. And we have healthier root systems, deeper root systems. All those things give us the resiliency of productivity in a grazing system, in a hay field or whatever. And so that's the kind of things that even though we have some variabilities, we have some risks. They help us to minimize the risks and to be able to uh, survive the, the whole downturn or whatever the case might be. Yeah, and it seems like like with things like weather, it, that has become even more out of our control, <laughs> the, the extreme situations that we're seeing. And that, that having that soil that's more resilient seems more important than ever. It sure does. Uh, and, uh, you know, we can argue about climate change, what's the cause or whatever, but we do seem to be seeing changes. And you know, that's kind of hard to argue with. And one of those things I think we're all kind of becoming aware of is the increasing intensity of the storms, the more rainfall in an event, and uh, how that, in other words, we need to have a little bigger buffer uh, uh, to be able to withstand a four-inch rain or something. And so when we have those healthier soils and ground cover, perennial ground covers, things like that, we're just uh, doing some good things, keeping that soil. And that four to six to eight inches or whatever it is of our topsoil we have got to take care of that because our whole life depends on it. So I think employing these things of perennial ground covers and stuff all work really well together to help us, uh, not only in our farm business, but really uh, for the greater good of all.
information on Greenland's Blue Waters is at greenlandsbluewaters.net. For more resources on grazing, soil health, and profitability, see landstewardshipproject.org. If you'd like to listen to the Ear to the Ground podcast in which farmer Olaf Hagen talks about how he connects soil health and profitability, check out episode 192. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.